The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. At age 12, he set the world record for a 12-year-old running a marathon. Two hours, 45 minutes, 34 seconds. Later in life, but not that much later, he would go out and create ultra shoes. Yes, he is to blame for putting the term toe box into the running lexicon. Golden Harper is on the adventure jogger. Welcome, Golden. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Is there any moment in your life that you've thought maybe you've created a monster because of your your, your shoe brand and now everybody's Uh, an expert in toe boxes? Yeah, before before I started, um, I knew that I was creating a monster, um, and I I resisted it for a long time. I really didn't want to do it. Um, I just starting a shoe company is is suicide. So, uh, but yeah, I, I knew going into it that it, it was going to be creating a monster for sure. You were going to be the one responsible for everybody on every uh, ultra running Facebook group saying like wait anytime someone requests like i need a big toe box what type of shoes do i need you gotta have ultra you gotta have ultra we'll get to the starting a shoe company in in a little bit but i want to kind of start from the beginning get the golden harper story like i said in the introduction age 12 you set a world record for a two hour and 45 minute marathon and that was not your first marathon at age yeah. 12 like like take us back to the moment when golden harper decided like i'm a runner uh it probably wasn't a conscious decision uh my, my parents were both uh world-class runners uh my dad was working for nike when i was born worked for Saucony most of my childhood um I'm, you know they were both sponsored athletes um and uh and then my next door neighbor was also an olympic trials qualifier in the marathon <laughs> And so uh, I just thought running is what people did. You know, I'm the kid who showed up to kindergarten and was like, hey, where do you run? <laughs> <laughs> and kids are just like, yeah, you're weird. Get away from me. <laughs> you know. Uh, but I literally just thought that's what people did. I thought that's what, you know, running is what humans do. Um, so, you know, I, I was racing, you know, my parents put on like 30 races the first few years I was born a year. Um, and a lot of them had kids races. So at age two, I was literally running foot races at age two. Um, and it just got to the point where I ran the world youth championships at age eight and I won that. Um, and then it was kind of like, what's next? It was like, Oh, well, mom and dad run marathons. You know, I want to run the marathon this year. I want to, I want to run the St. George marathon. Cause that was like the, the culminating event of the season. And they were like, you're eight, no way, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, but then, then this terrible, wonderful thing happened. The youngest runner in the race that year, uh, I turned nine right before race day, but the youngest runner in the race that year, uh, won the uh, achievement of the day, the Dole fresh fruit award, six foot tall trophy. <laughs> and he, he was 12 years old and he ran a, a pretty, you know, pretty decent time. Um, but I never let my parents hear the end of it after that. <laughs> if, 
if you would have let me run, I would have got that huge trophy, you know? And, and, uh, you know, I assure you to a kid that grew up running, there is nothing more cool than a six foot tall trophy when you're three feet tall, you know? So, and that's still kind of true actually. So (laughs) that is so true. So you're eight, you're nine years old. You see the gigantic trophy that this 12 year old kid gets. And so I bet it is a constant because I being a father of three, I know it can be a constant reminder. Like it was probably every day that Golden yep. Harper's going to his his parents and going like, man, you know, it looked great in this room. A six foot <laughs> tall six foot trophy. Tall trophy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you pretty much nailed it. <laughs> did they did they relent then and say like, OK, we're going to let you run your first marathon at 10 years old? So uh, what happened is my dad finally got fed up and he's like, okay, fine. You can run the marathon if, and this was a big, if it was like, if you run to the top of Mount Timpanogos and back, um, which by the way, is harder than running a marathon. (laughs) And if you run rim to rim in the grand Canyon, which also is harder than a marathon on the road. And um, so there were, there were all these qualifying steps. And I think, I think deep down inside, he, he might've hoped that, Oh, he'll, he'll try to run this mountain or he'll try to run rim to rim. And he'll realize this is a terrible idea. You know, um, he just didn't realize quite how twisted I am. Cause I kind of liked it. <laughs> so, you know, you know, golden as, as you're saying these things, as you're talking about your parents and your dad saying like, you can run rim to rim, you can do this thing. And if you do these things, I'll let you do the marathon. Some people might consider that child abuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, I get it all the time. And my, my parents actually got it all the time. I mean, people were so angry with my parents for letting me run marathons, you know, my first one at age 10. Um, but it, it was all me, you know, it was like, they were literally trying to prevent me from doing it. And it was like, okay, if I have to run rim to rim in the grand Canyon to be able to run a marathon, so be it, let's go, let's do it game on, you know? And then I went and I loved it. You know, it was, to me, it was, it was a blast. I was having fun. I wasn't, I wasn't like out training hard. Right. I was just, freaking playing up in the mountains. I mean, that's, we lived right up against the base of the mountain. I just, I just went and chased deer all day, you know? So that's, that's incredible. <laughs> I do wonder how many, like they're, 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 I'm guessing we're this, we're about the same age. I'm, a, I'm about three years older than you. And so I'm guessing 10 year old golden Harper running a marathon. The only thing that kept uh, the department of child services from getting more calls is most people didn't have cell phones on them at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I I will tell you though, um, when, you know, as I got to be 11 and 12 and and ran even faster. So I ran 308, 308 at 10 for my first marathon. Just, just pause it. Let let everyone let that sink in just for a second. Everybody golden ran a 308 at 10 years old. Let that sink in. Yeah. It's kind of stupid. So, and well, here's the best part. They didn't give me the trophy and that, that was a state record time. Um, they, they gave the trophy to the oldest runner that year. And, um, and so, you know, obviously the next year it was like, okay, you know, we're going to get this thing. So I came back the next year around 257 at age 11, which is still the fastest anyone in America has ever run a marathon at that age. Um, and they gave the trophy to a disabled athlete and you're kind of like, all right, you know, you can't complain about that. You're like, ah, Fair not enough, much I know, can say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then it was like, you know, okay, the, it's, it's really on this next year. We're, we're getting this sucker, you know? Um, and so you're about the same speed as the Olympic trials qualifying woman. Right. Yeah. And to, to just explain to people who haven't been really, really fast, which is most everybody, um, 
if if you're qualifying for the Olympic trials, you either have supreme confidence or a pretty big ego. Yeah. You probably have both. Right. And so I'm about the same speed as the Olympic trials qualifying woman. And except I'm a three foot tall sawed off run with red hair. <laughs> and as I go running by, like I learn a lot of new vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's just, that's just how it was. So, um, that, that was life as a, as a young marathoner, lots of new words and lots of people calling your parents child abusers. Wow. That's incredible. You know, it's so funny to think about golden. If you didn't see that six foot tall trophy at that race, when you were nine years old, and that didn't spark something in you and didn't force your parents to say like, oh, well, I don't want this kid to run a marathon. Listen, oh, okay, we'll let you, but you got to do these impossible things and then you do them. And they're like, oh, crap, now we got to let him run a marathon. If it wasn't for that six foot tall trophy, nobody would know the term toe box. <laughs> it all comes back to that, that six foot tall trophy. So you got the trophy at age 12 when you set the world record, right? No, <laughs> somebody buy Golden Harper a twelve, a uh, six foot tall trophy, please. It's so funny because like I never got. It. I ran even faster the next year, and um, I never got the stupid trophy. And you know, today I have the records. Um, you know, all of them. Yeah, and none of none of them have been broken, which is cool. Um, and I don't have the trophy, and I, I really wouldn't have it any other way. I have no idea. I, I just like if you've ever moved you know how crappy it is to move your stuff. Yeah. Moving a six foot tall trophy is, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like, I'm, I'm glad I have the records and not the trophy and not the other way around. So. I'm just imagining too, when you're talking about, you know, being 12 years old and you're right up there with elite women. I mean, you're up there with, with some pretty confident men too. And just experiencing that, and you have no idea at 12 years old, you have you, the ego is, is kind of a thing and confidence kind of thing. You probably had no idea why adults were mumbling things you've never heard before as you would pass them. Yeah, pretty much. That's accurate. Did you go, did you go home and then when you're driving home from the race where you're like, Hey mom and dad, what does blankety blank mean? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't remember back that far. I burned too many brain cells running long distance as a kid. <laughs> Golden, where'd you hear that term? Some lady called me at mile 20. I don't even know yeah. what it means. So you go on to high school and you run cross country and yeah. you and you dominate cross country in high school. Yeah, but it, it didn't start that way. Um, you know, my, my sophomore year, I, I didn't run my freshman year because I was, I was running a marathon that year during the season. Yeah. Um, and I just wasn't into it. Um, I thought, I thought short races were for like children, um, <laughs> at, at that point in time. And, but I came back and my dad's like, you know, if you, if you want to get a scholarship, like you either like better get good grades or run really fast because you're going to college and we're not paying for it. So, you know, run, run faster, get good grades. And so I decided, okay, I'll run cross, you know, country my sophomore year. And, um, I ended up 45th at state and I'm telling you, I trained just as hard for that cross country season as I did for my world best marathon. Um, now obviously I'm, you know, um, more genetically geared to run longer, yeah. um, is one po point, but you know, I, I had been told three things repeatedly since I was young, you know, a you're ruining your knees. 
Mm-hmm. B, you're doing too much LSD. Yeah. Uh, you know, for those who don't know too much long, slow distance. Yeah. Um, and, and, and C, um, it's, it's, you ruin your knees, too much LSD, make yourself slow. Um, and you'll be short, you know, you're going to be, you're basically you're going to be a midget. You're going uh, to stunt ruining, your growth. Yeah. That's what yeah, you yeah. stunt your growth, ruining your growth plates. And, um, I will tell you what, you know what I heard that entire cross country season in my head, your knees are going to blow up. You've done too much LSD and, um, and you've stunted your growth and, and true to form. I was about six inches shorter than most of the other kids, at yeah. least a few inches shorter. I hadn't grown yet. Um, I, my knees didn't hurt, but I was just waiting for them to. And I was, I was slow compared to the other kids. I did not have the same, um, you know, speed for, for kicks and, yeah. and, and short distance stuff. And, and track season was like a disaster, you know, yeah. it took me, it took me, um, you know, till the end of my sophomore year to break five minutes in the mile on the track. And, you know, I was, I was running the marathon at six minutes a mile. You right. Know, right. At age 12. Um, and I had turned a four forty-five mile in a race, you know, at age 12 or 13. So, yeah. um, but just to get that quick back and, you know, I heard that all the time and it, it took a lot of work and effort, you know, the next year from my sophomore year to my junior year, you know, game planning with my dad and, and really putting a plan in place to go after it and, and win that state championship and, and just an immense amount of work and effort that, that went into retooling my body and everything I had to do to learn how to run short and fast. Um, and luckily for me, I grew six inches, you know, over the summer and, um, you know, my, I've never had knee problems and I got a scholarship to any college in the world. So all the haters can suck it. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think though, golden kids hear things and kids can be kind of cruel and you're a sophomore and you're coming onto the cross country team and you're the kid that has the world record in the marathon and people are going to have all sorts of ideas about the kid that has a world record in the marathon. Did you face some, some kind of harsh interactions with some kids because you weren't living up to what they thought you should? Um, uh, not really. Um, I, I just like th- there was a strategy which was like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the other Golden Harper. I don't know. Yeah. You got me mixed up with that other guy. Uh, yeah. Harper. I mean, honestly, most of the kids didn't know. Um, so, and the, the kids that were, were really cool about it. And, um, you know, I, luckily I, I grew up in a part of the world that is, is very compassionate and people were super nice. So, well, and, and you I grew up before social that. media, golden. That's the, yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely. no Facebook post memories popping up, you know, of your mom posting, Oh, our boy golden set the world better popping up and everybody sees it later on. So that, yeah. that might've helped a little bit. So you do really well. And I mean, you're, you win state. And you get a yeah. scholarship uh, to go run cross country. Where did you decide to 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 use that that golden ticket, pun intended, to go to college? Um, so where did I go to school? Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, I ended up choosing to go to Brigham Young University mm-hmm. uh, for a myriad of factors, but one was Ed Ed Eyestone, the Olympian marathoner got hired on as the coach that year. And when you have an Olympic marathoner step into your living room and say, come run for me, um, you know, that's, uh, th- that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, th- there were, you know, many factors there, but that was certainly one of them that, that was attractive to me. Um, 
and and the irony is you kind of you know don't realize that first year coaches sometimes have a tough go um for, for a few years as, as they're kind of getting the hang of things and and honestly it didn't work out for me at all um i i you know i grew up running in the mountains and and ed grew up running 100 mile weeks on the road yeah you know i, I was bored to tears and injured constantly um under that training program and and you know I, I don't blame anybody it was just it was just a conflict of styles um over time you know ed has become an amazing coach obviously you know BYU won the national championship last year yeah um shout out to them and um you know it, it's a combination of he's found ways to work better with guys like me but he's also found ways to recruit guys that um could kind of fit his system a little bit better as well um and you know they've been just fabulously successful which is so fun to see you know for me Oh, as an alumni, yeah. But you'd think as as a guy who has done what you've done up to that point, you know, you're a, you're a freshman, sophomore in college. I mean, you had to be thinking like the world could be my oyster, and and I could see some real success in college cross country. And to not see that success, how did you deal with that? Uh, I transferred. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you transfer to? So I actually, I actually transferred out to the North shore of Hawaii, um, out, to, uh, you know, by the surf capital of the world. Uh, there, there's a liberal arts school out there. It's actually at BYU Hawaii. And, um, and, and part of it was this, I hate track. I hated running circles. Like I, like I said, I grew up running in the mountains. I love cross country. Um, and I, I had just broken off like a three-year relationship and this, this girl comes home and she's, she's now running for BYU in Provo and she had been second at the national championships out while she was running in Hawaii and we're on a, a Ragnar team together and she's yeah. like, Hey, uh, so yeah, this, that, and she starts talking about it, And I was like, wait, say that again. She said, well, yeah, I came, I came here cause you know, um, there's no track season out there and I really wanted to run track. And I was like, there's no track season. <laughs> like, and she's like, she's like, yeah. And I was like, so what about scholarship? She's like, oh yeah, this cross country scholarship. It pays for your schooling all year. And I was like, what do people do in the spring? She's like, oh, they surf. And I was like, yeah, you want to call that coach for me? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, next thing I know, it's literally like three weeks later, I'm, I'm heading out to Hawaii, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was an experience that changed my life and, and really slowed me down and chilled me out and, and helped, helped me learn how to relax. And, and I was, I was really successful running out there, um, had a blast and, and, you know, won the conference championship, um, uh, for the, the Pacific West conference and, um, just, you know, had a, had a great, you know, senior year out there. So, and, and got to surf during track season instead of running circles. So, uh, <laughs> For, for two years, it was pretty. It was, it was pretty magical. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. It's not bad. You go to Hawaii on a scholarship. You get to live in Hawaii and surf a bit and run a bit. That's that's not bad. If you were to complain about that, Golden, like, oh man, I had to surf. Uh, <laughs> it was horrible. People be like, man, yeah. I don't know if I like this Golden Harper guy. So it's a good yeah. thing that you you understand how what an awesome opportunity that was. So you graduate college. Um, a lot of people that's where running stops, and that's yeah. where the pounds start. And the, yeah. and the get out of shape happens. What happened to you and your running after you got out of college? So, uh, you know, there's two things from a running standpoint. Um, you know, I always knew I was good at long and, and kind of the longer, the better. Mm -hmm. And so I, I trained to run an ultra even before I left Hawaii. Um, cause I stayed six months after my senior season was over. Yeah. 
and I'm, I'm running out there and I train for the hurt, hurt, um, 100 K yeah. and you know, I trained pretty well. I thought I knew what I was doing. And, and unfortunately I had, I had gone home for Christmas break and I, I got the stomach flu and I ran 20 miles with, with Carl Meltzer, the ultra running legend, yeah. Carl Meltzer, um, who I know well and who, you know, grew up, you know, who lived 15 miles from where I grew up. Right. Um, and we knew of each other, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, just ended up kind of having, you know, for lack of a better term, things coming out both ends, you know, right, right. out the mouth and the backside. <laughs> and I lost so much weight that they pulled me off the course. Um, so my first 100 uh, K, my first ultra was a DNF. Uh, and then I went and did, uh, the John Muir trail with my, my buddy, Brian. And we, we did that in a week, which was a fabulous experience. And then, um, I trained for the Alpine to Slick Rock 50 miler, which to, to this day is still my favorite race on earth. And, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Chris Martinez, the race director actually just passed of cancer, um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, but he, he engineered like the most amazing course on the, you know, on American soil, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, I got to go out there and mix it up with, with some pro athletes and I ended up winning the race by an hour. I, I ran my last 10 K in 37 minutes. I ran a five forty five mile, mile 46. Um, and it just went really well, yeah. you know? Uh, and, um, so that's what was happening on the running front. Um, but you know, back up six months, I'm in Hawaii and you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I, I woke up one day and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I was, I was a surf addict. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm going to end up like all these guys that live here. They live in their little shack by the ocean. They've got all their surfboards and their guitars, which I play guitar as well. Um, and, and their dog, and they are loving life and they're surfing and just having a blast and they're contributing nothing to the world. And, um, all my collegiate research was on running technique and yeah. running injuries and footwear and shoes. You know, um, I grew up working in a running store, so yeah. I was obsessed with shoes and, and, and making that experience better. And I literally just woke up one day and it was just like, I got to contribute something to the world and I can't just stay out here. And it's selfish, you know, surfing's great. It's fun. Running out here is amazing, but there's there's not a lot of opportunity in Hawaii to change the world for for the better. Was it one Jack Johnson song too many? Is that what it was? You're like, God, I can't hear banana pancakes one more time. (laughs) Probably (laughs) something like that. Yeah. And it's funny. Like I actually saw Jack Johnson in person, just hanging out at the beach, you know, and, and probably more than once. Um, and yeah, so I, I ended up just moving home, going back to manage the running store and, and starting ultra almost, um, kind of simultaneously. And that was all starting to happen, uh, just as I was starting to run ultras so, and, uh, I had to choose between ultra and ultras. Okay. So, so. that that's an awful fast way to, to get to that point, starting your own shoe company when did, when did you decide, like, I need to do my own shoe company? That probably didn't, that didn't really roll around, um, until I'd been experimenting with it for at least a year. Okay. Um, and after I'd been pitching it to, um, other shoe companies. So, so what really happened is, um, if you go through the research, there, there's a couple of fundamental things that you learn when you're researching running shoes that are diametrically opposed to everything that I grew up teaching people and, and doing working as, you know, in, in a shoe running shoe store, managing, etc. Um, and you know, the most basic are that cushioning does not protect your joints. 
it actually magnifies forces on your joints. It, it protects your feet, but it also weakens your feet. So there's a double-edged sword there. Um, and then, you know, the, the second is that pronation is not necessarily bad. We don't have, you know, only 1% of this 204 studies on pronation show any link between overpronation and injuries. Um, so why are we demonizing it? And why do we create stability shoes that supposedly fix it? And then we, you know, if you actually look at stability shoes, they don't actually change pronation. They just make it look better so that people in running stores feel good about themselves. So th there's all this kind of stuff that I had learned in college. Um, and, um, and then of course I grew up, uh, you know, being top Kenyan running technique from a very young age because my dad has no cartilage in his knee. And my dad had to learn how to become a world-class runner while running with his tibia and his femur grinding together every single step, huh. um, bone on bone. And so, you know, I, I was, I, I had Kenyan running technique, low impact, easy on your knees, efficient, fast form, basically drilled into my head since I was five. And that's a um, quick turnover, short stride, isn't it? Yeah. I, I never call it short, but I do call it quick. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it, you're always trying to keep the, the steps quick and, and you're keeping the, the hands back and the chest and hips forward and, and, and you're staying tall and, you know, we can, we can go into all that fun stuff too. Um, cause I'm super passionate about the, the form side of things because for eons, humans moved this way. Right. And about 60 years ago, that all changed. Um, and that was due to shoes. And so this was all stuff I learned in college. And so what really happened, the, the kind of turning point for me is that um, we're sitting there selling shoes in the store and we get high speed video at the store yeah. where we can see people running in slow motion really clearly. And at our running store, we did something fairly unique. Um, my dad would give virtually anybody who came in the store a lesson on how to protect their body when they ran basically yeah. like, Hey, you know, I'm at the end of my career but you know, I've been running bone on bone for 30 years and I still dominated and yeah. I'm healthy and you know, I love running and you know, you can run till you're a hundred years old if, if you just do this stuff. And so people get these running lessons from us, but we start filming people in, in high speed and we find like, it's, it's really easy to um, get people to do the form without shoes on. Yeah. It's really easy, easy to have people do great form in a pair of cross country flats um, and we got these new things called Vibram five fingers and we were the first running store in the country to carry them. And we didn't sell them as a replacement for a running shoe, but we sold them as a foot strengthening device and work on your form device to wear a couple times a week, um, on short and easy runs. And so we really want to know how they're affecting our customers. So we're, we're filming customers in the five fingers and this is before anybody even knew anything about them. This was before yeah. hardly any running stores ever carried them. And, um, you know, what we found is people pretty naturally run a certain way without their shoes on. Uh, they, they run quite well, um, especially on a, a natural surface, you know, uh, on grass or, or dirt or whatever. And people look pretty good in a tread on a treadmill in five fingers. We didn't have to give them a whole lot of coaching before they were, you know, they're just, they're nailing it and they look, they look good. And then we started filming them in the shoes we had just sold them. And it was like the wheels come off. And my dad says, I don't know if we're really helping people here. Yeah. I give every single person that comes in this door a lesson on how to protect their body. And all this video we're shooting makes it look like we sell them a pair of shoes that undoes everything we teach them every single time they go out there. I get one shot at teaching them. The shoes get a shot at them every single time they go run. And that was, uh, you know, that, that was really the turning point of like, okay, you know, 
we can't just sell everybody five fingers though. Like right. it's not, it's not realistic. It's not sustainable. And, you know, yes, through all of human history, people grew up running this way, but they didn't grow up running on perfectly flat rock hard surfaces. Right. Um, and PS I'm training for a Rocky 50 mile race in the mountains. Um, so I got to have something and protection is confidence and confidence is speed, baby. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, so, so there was this, you know, kind of unique thing where I, I definitely came from a background where a lot of the science behind minimalism and barefoot is, is accurate. Um, the way it was applied and, uh, the way it was marketed and the way it was covered by the media are, are different things um, altogether, unfortunately. But, um, you know, with with the scientific background of, of how to do this, um, but I wanted to marry that with the cushioning and comfort and protection of a traditional shoe. You know, how do we simulate the barefoot running on grass experience on rock hard concrete? You know, how do we simulate the barefoot running on grass experience on a rocky, nasty technical mountain trail? Um, and that's when I got into chopping up shoes and put shoes in toaster ovens and, and all that fun stuff. So you first went to like traditional shoe companies and you were like, Hey guys, I think we, you need to come up with a, a, a foot shaped shoe with a zero drop. And they were like, yeah, yeah. L- l- listen, Mr. Harper, golden, whatever, whoever you are. We here at Nike know how to make shoes. We don't need some whippersnapper fresh out of college telling us how to make our shoes. Thank you very much. Was it something similar to that? Yeah, except I had a year of testing behind me at that time. We had a thousand surveys with six weeks of running on each of these surveys. So basically what happened is is um, I built the first pair of shoes in a toaster oven, and then we worked with the local cobbler down down the street to make the cushioning be level and weight balanced front to back. Um, and then, and then we would expand the toe box and skip the laces and and sell the shoe too big, essentially. Um, and, uh, it, it got like, you know, it just started with one injured guy that we had tried everything on and we couldn't fix him. Yeah. So we were like, ah, we're testing these things. And he saw my shoes. What are you wearing? It was crazy. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know. We're just testing it. Like it seems on video to make people run with better technique, which might help your knee. It might not, it might hurt you. It might help you. Who knows? He's yeah. like, well, I'm desperate at this point. Let me try him. So this guy like takes off, goes for a run and comes back. And he's like, I'll take them. You know? And I'm like, uh, no, you won't. Those are my shoes. You know? <laughs> right. Those are prototypes. He's like, well, he's like, well, I can tell they make me run better. And I, I think my knee is going to hurt less running this way. Um, can I get a pair? And, and so we have the shoemaker down the street and make him a pair of shoes. And we swear him to secrecy because he's just taken like one of the best selling shoes in our store and we've hacked it. Um, we've cut it. And then he's, he's taken the shoe and, and bought it. So you take, and, hang on, I'm, goal. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Goal. So I'm fascinated with the story of the toaster ovens and all this stuff. So you, you're, you're working at a running store. You take another shoe and you modify it in the toaster, melting things and, and moving this and, and putting that and then taking the entire bottom off and having like a custom that had the cobbler put this custom thing that he made on the bottom of this Frankenstein shoe that you kind of put together. It's kind of like that. Yeah. The, the first shoe, um, what I did is my dad was always modifying shoes. So this wasn't that weird at my house. Okay. It's, it is that weird. It just wasn't at my house. <laughs> um, I'm glad you pointed that out. Because, Colton. 
Cause I kind of, you know, I said to him, I'm like, Hey, you know, I got this theory, you know, the back half of the shoe is a lot thicker and a lot heavier. You have all this plastic in the back half of the shoe. You have all this technology, you know, gel is heavy. Yeah. A plastic heel counter in the back half of the shoe is heavy. And if you look at what's happening on the video, when people's feet swing out in front of their body, when they're barefoot or in a pair of five fingers or a pair of racing flats, their foot stays pretty parallel to the ground. And then it comes and it lands underneath a bent knee. But in our best-selling shoes that we're selling people, when the foot comes out in front of the body, the heel drops, the toes pop up. Um, and that's probably because the back half of the shoe weighs a lot more than the front half of the shoe. And then the foot catches the ground about three inches earlier than it otherwise would, you know, naturally. Yeah. Um, and that's probably because the back half of the shoe is twice as thick as the front half of the shoe. And at the time, virtually all running shoes were exactly two to one ratio in the midsole. Mm-hmm. If, if the front of the shoe was 10 millimeters, the back was 20. If the front was 12, the back was 24. And that, that just comes from shoes used to be built with EVA wedges. Yeah. And they would, you know, 10 millimeter wedge for the base and a 10 millimeter wedge in the heel. And we'll, then we'll slope it down um, through the arch area. And um, so, you know, I, I just said to my dad, I'm like, I, I think, you know, my thought is if I can get the shoe to be weight balanced, the heel isn't going to drop, you know, the foot will stay more natural, stay more parallel to the ground. And if I can get the shoe to be the same amount of cushioning heel to forefoot, um, then the foot's going to land underneath the knee. Like it's supposed to like, it, like it naturally would anyway. Yeah. And so I just need to rip the outsole off, pull the cushioning out, put some new cushioning in. Um, we had this Spenco foam that we sold in flat sheets at the store at the time. And, and he just looks at me and he's like, well, 275 wait till the glue bubbles you know and i was like all right he's like yeah it's 275 degrees wait till the glue bubbles downstairs in the toaster oven mom doesn't have to know all of a sudden you hear this this yelling like who's putting shoes in the toaster oven i'm trying to make grilled cheese yeah pretty much so <laughs> um but yeah you know it happens in the basement you know we open up the mini oven and set it to 275 and, and cook the shoes and pull it, get a pair of pliers and i i honestly left them in a little too long and melted the laces and, and some of the tpu on the upper so they, they literally were frankenstein shoes like you said uh, but you know grab a pair of pliers and rip the rubber off the bottom rip the foam out put some some layers of this spenco foam in which is amazing glue the rubber back on and go for a run. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm wearing a cushy supportive training shoe, but I also feel like I have the biomechanics of, of barefoot. I feel like I'm running, you know, barefoot in the grass, even though I'm running on the road, I feel like I'm running, you know, naturally, um, without, you know, um, without actually being barefoot, um, which is obviously critical for, for a lot of reasons. And so I tested on my staff and 95% of them think it's amazing. And then, as I told you, it ends up on this guy's feet. And of course, we we swear him to secrecy. You know, we're like, hey, don't tell anybody that we hacked up your, um, you know, this Saucony shoe. Um, and you know, it's it's like it's like a month later, and this guy comes in. He's like, all right, who, who sold Joe the hacked up shoes? And I'm like sitting on the fit bench, like, <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. <laughs> And he looks pissed. Right. And then he's like, ah, heck, sell me a pair of two. I've known that guy forever. And his knees have always hurt, you know? And, and now he says he, these shoes help him run different and he feels better. So get me a pair of two. And it just, next thing we knew, it's like fight club at runner's corner, um, <laughs> where like people are coming in and they're just like, yeah, you, you sold my buddy, these hacked up shoes and you know, his, his or her, you know, whatever feels better. And, you know, can I get a pair? And we're like, we don't, we don't sell those. 
And people are like, oh, we know you have them in the back. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, what's the password, right? <laughs> you have to knock so, on the door three times and say something like, my knees really hurt in the evening. And then, you know, yeah. like you slide open the door. Don't tell anyone where you got these. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much how it went. So, and, but we were really smart, um, after being really stupid, uh, <laughs> we, we figured out real quick, we were probably going to get sued for hacking up our best selling shoes. Yeah. Um, and at this point we have the, the, the shoemaker doing them down the road. So they look a lot better than my toaster oven variations. Um, and, um, we started collecting research on everybody. So we sent them home with this 25 question survey and we say, after you've run or walked in the shoes for six weeks, bring them, bring the survey back and we'll pay you 10 bucks of, of store credit. Yeah. And, um, you know, 10 bucks is a decent motivator for a lot of people. So right. we, we got most of those back and we had really good data and, and what we found across the board after a year and about a thousand runners worth, um, and a thousand pairs of shoes in a year is just, it, it's an insane amount at any running store, right. um, let alone one type of shoe. Uh, it, that's how nuts it kind of it got. Um, but we, you know, we had great data and we, we had five areas where we had immense success, plantar fascia issues. Um, you know, what we used to call plantar fasciitis, what we now call plantar fasciosis, um, shin splints, runner's knee, it band and low back. Those were the five we had like massive success rates with. And so that is when I went and presented to the shoe companies and said, here's the data. These injuries all get better if you make the shoes so the toes can totally spread out and be lost in space and you make the shoe so that, um, it's weight balanced front to back and the, the, you know, one side isn't thicker or heavier than the other. Um, and, um, you know, the response isn't quite the way you crafted it, but it was, it was more along the lines of like, don't you know how marketing running shoe marketing works? You know, impact is bad. Our cool cushioning technology protects people from impact. And you're trying to tell us that you want to make a shoe that helps people run better to take that impact out of the equation instead of having our technology do it. And I'm like, well, the science is that impact is not necessarily bad, that running shoe cushioning does not actually protect from impact. It actually amplifies it at the joint level. And so that's why, you know, I want to take a shoe that modifies, you know, that um, helps people to run in a more natural way to, to, to mitigate those forces. Um, and so to your point, you know, basically everybody was like, no, we'd have to flush 40 years of marketing down, down the road and admit we've been wrong. That's, that's interesting, Golden. Cause honestly, you know, I don't, I don't see the marketing huge shift, right? So you have, you have your traditional shoe and you have the, all of a sudden you have the new Nike Suplertron 9000, which is designed for people with knee pain or whatever, like never, never feel knee pain again or, or something along those lines. That's really interesting. And it almost speaks to the fact that sometimes you can get so caught up in your own brand and so that you can't even see the trees in the, through the forest because you're so yeah. just seeing what's right in front of you and you're not able to look at things objectively. And it must feel pretty good for you to see the things that you've brought to the shoe world. And I joked about the toe box, but you see other manufacturers picking that up. And it's probably manufacturers that told you like, nah, 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 listen, Golden, we got this figured out. It, to see yeah, them adopting things that you've, that you've uh, brought up. So so at one point, the, the, the shoes, the, the cobbled Frankenstein shoes that you've sold a thousand of in a year, you at one point decide like, okay, we got to make our own shoe brand. 
it, it was reluctant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, at first I was, I was really pissed at the shoe companies, you know, cause I was like, like, no, the, the goal of what we're doing at a running store here is try to help people run without injured injury right, because right. people aren't injured. They run more. And when they run more, they buy more crap and that's good for all of us. Right. You know? Um, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's a win-win and you just don't get a lot of those in life where it's like, everybody's happy, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I was really upset cause it was, you know, I was basically saying to these guys, here's the data injuries get better. Um, will you make a shoe this way? And they were all basically saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, we don't, we don't care about that. That, uh, that's not who we are. That's not what we're about. And I'm right. like, you don't care that people you know, are, are less injured with all this data and, and pretty much they're like, yeah, we don't really care. You know, it's not a focus for yeah. us. Um, and you know, I just kind of grew up under the guys that that was the focus. And so it was, it was pretty, you know, as, as a sneaker head who for the last 15 years had been selling shoes and loved these shoe companies, adored them, yeah. practically worshiped these shoe companies. It was really hard to hear. And you know, it, it factored into what I ended, you know, what we ended up naming the company later as a result. Um, but, um, yeah, so it, it, what happened is my cousin, Jeremy, you know, came to my house on my birthday. He hadn't run in like five years yeah. and I told him what was going on. He's like, well, I got to try this. And so, um, you know, he runs half the run in, in his shoes. We just do like three miles on the trail Yeah, and you know, his knees are hurting and whatnot. And then, I, I put a pair, uh, we switched shoes. We're the same size, luckily. And I, I put a pair of foot shaped, um, or, you know, expanded toe box, uh, zero drop cushion shoes on him. And we run back and he's like, this is amazing. Like I run different and, and my knees don't hurt, you know? And it, it's not saying it's always gonna be that fast for right. everybody. Um, for him it was, and he's like, he's, he's like, you know, can you give me a pair? So I make him a pair, mm-hmm. you know? And a few weeks later, he's running a lot. And he's like, this is amazing. He's like, can you give me a real pair? And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, they're real. He's like, well, you know, like not made by you. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and he's, he's not in the industry at all. Right. Um, right. And he's like, you know, like come this way. And I was like, dude, there are no running shoes on the market that are shaped like healthy human feet. And there are definitely no running shoes on the market that, um, you know, are weight balanced front to back and have the same amount of cushioning in the forefoot and the heel. Um, and so, you know, if there was, I wouldn't be making them myself. So you, you knucklehead. Right. Um, and he couldn't believe it. He's like, no, that that's, that's unreal. You're telling me there's no shoes that leave your foot in its natural barefoot position to run in. I'm like, well, that have cushion. No, you know, and that don't have five toe pockets. No, you know? Yes. <laughs> and, um, he just, he was incredulous, you know? And he's like, well, we're making them. And I was like, dude, I've thought about that for like a year you don't just go start a shoe company. We've had the same seven big running shoe companies since the beginning of running shoe time. It's the quickest way to go homeless is to start a shoe company. Right. Um, and he's like, well, he's like, you just worry about designing the shoes. I'll take care of everything else. And I was like, okay, whatever. And next thing I know he's, he's, you know, I get this call from this guy and from, from Nike and he's like, Hey, this is, this is Vlad. And uh, I heard about what you're doing, hacking up shoes at your store. And I'm like, Oh no, it's finally happening. <laughs> right. We're finally getting sued, you know? <laughs> um, 
and uh, and i'm just like oh i'm so sorry you know and he's like he's like no it's cool he's like i, I left nike and, and my partners uh, left adidas and we've we've known shoes were supposed to be built like this for 15 years we've had the research internally um you know do you remember adidas feet you wear for example and i'm like yes i do i had a pair of those basketball shoes but um and uh he's like you know let's let's get together and you know it, it went real fast from there jeremy and a buddy of mine uh from the from the running store jacob and and me we took a trip up to portland oregon area um and we met with these guys and you know next thing i knew we were a million dollars in debt so wow just, a huge a huge real fast. gamble a huge gamble where did the name come from golden <laughs> Um, so, you know, we had played with all these, these names, but eventually we settled on Altera and Altera, I think there was a Latin word, if I remember correctly, we, we found that meant to mend or fix that, which is broken. And I was like, well, this is perfect. Like the goal of everything we're trying to do is fix injured runners. Like that's right. the whole point of why we're starting this thing. And I feel like we're trying to fix a broken industry that doesn't give a crap about injured runners. Right. Um, and so, you know, we had Altera, but then of course Altera, the software company threatened to sue us and, you know, we'd have money or time to fight it. So our, our lawyers were like, you know, our lawyer was like, you can, you will easily win this lawsuit, but it will take money and it will take time and you don't have either. So change your name. And so, uh, I, I think we're a little bit dense. Um, but I think my buddy Brian suggested, um, that, that had just joined on, um, as well. And, and Jacob had left in the meantime. Um, so Brian comes on and he's like, how about ultra? You know, that's, it's like, we can use the LTR in, in the middle for learn to run, love to run, live to run. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're all about teaching people how to run with better technique. And, and we didn't realize that ultra was only one letter different than Altera, you know, and we, we turned it back into the trademark commission, which is like a 99% chance. They're going to be like, you guys changed one letter. Like, <laughs> no, you know, uh, and also the first three letters are the most important part of a trademark. So definitely no. And by some miracle, it came back approved. And so, um, but we looked at it as we're an alternative to traditional shoe brands. Um, you know, I had started running ultra marathons. Brian was a very accomplished ultra marathoner. Um, and, um, you know, so alternative plus ultra kind of crash them together and you get ultra. Okay. What was the dumbest name you had thought of for your shoe company? Do you remember the one where you're like, Oh God, I'm glad we didn't go with that one. Uh, the first one we ran with was, was pro zero pro zero. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it sounds kind of cool, but when you really think about it, you're like, wow, that's, that's really kitschy. <laughs> But I still, I still have like a notebook with a Pro Zero logo on it that I had done. So, <laughs> so there was, I'm sure there were some that were far worse. <laughs> but so you, you got the name. Um, who designs the logo? Is that something you, where you just sketch that out on a napkin at a bar or something? Or how did that come together? You know, it's a lot like the Nike story. Um, you know, they, they've got their, uh, they've got their waffle iron. We've got our mini oven. Um, and with the logo, it was kind of the same thing. We, uh, we just put a design contest up on 99designs.com <laughs> and, and we offered like 250 bucks to somebody who could come up with a logo that would look fast on a shoe. Yeah. And, um, you know, I still remember the, the guy's name, dark moans for whatever that is. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he comes up with this logo and, you know, we changed it a little bit, but more or less, like this is the logo we ran with and he kind of put it on a shoe and a t-shirt and, and we were like, that looks good. It looks fast. Let's do it. You know? So that's where the journey logo came, came from. And I love that. You know, 
A guy we call not, our logo the Journey logo. Yeah, the guy on the on the internet called Dark Moans came up with <laughs> the Ultra logo. <laughs> yeah, it's classic. <laughs> you know, when I started my podcast. I had my 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 college age daughter design the logo. I'm like, okay, you live here for free. You got to put this logo together. So they didn't cost me two hundred fifty dollars, and I didn't have to. Uh, give that to a guy named dark moans but you know it all, <laughs> it all comes out so you, you get the name you get the logo but at some point you've, you've got to have someone make these things you have to design the product and you have to yeah. have a factory make these things that's not an easy task to, to to complete it's one thing to have a name and all that stuff but how, what was that step um, you know, that, that was hard. I mean, luckily we had the guys from Nike and Adidas, um, you know, there was a group called proof of concept and, um, they, they had connections for some of that. Um, in fact, Vlad had actually owned his own factories in the past and, and he had a, a shoemaking, you know, de facto factory in his garage, um, in, in Beaverton. And, uh, so, but they had connections to a sourcing agent. The problem was we were deeply committed to producing in the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they couldn't, they, they were like, for these reasons, you can't do it here, you know? And we were like, well, we're going to do it here, you know, no matter what. And Jeremy was looking into like prison manufacturing and like all this crazy stuff. I mean, we literally turned over every stone to try and build in the USA and the, the reality was like, you couldn't make products with this level of technicality in America. Mm-hmm. You could make simple products and you could make quality products, but, but they had to be, be pretty simple. And, you know, I, I, I know somebody else from that era, um, you know, a colleague who, who did end up making shoes in the USA, casual shoes, and they were $350 and, and, you know, technically they were equivalent to about a, a $60 shoe made in China. Uh, and that's not to say they were bad shoes. They right. just weren't you know, they didn't have the same type of technology in, you know, the way the shoes are built. Um, and, you know, so you, so you pay, you know, four times as much for the shoe and you get something that is, you know, not technical at all. And, and we eventually, you know, kind of had to concede that it, it couldn't be done um, at least, you know, not now. And I, I hope someday we can do that. Um, we're just going to have to import a bunch of Asians over here that, that know their crap. Um, cause you're saying basically nobody knows how to do that skilled work here. There's no one, there's no factory that you can say, build me this for this price. And they're like, I don't even know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't about price for us at all. We, yeah. you know, it was like, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll pay whatever. It was just about technically being able to do it to your point. And it just wasn't, wasn't technically possible. So, um, our sourcing agent, uh, who's just this fabulous man, um, he knew our values and our morals and our ethics and, and, and knew that, you know, we were, um, you know, very committed to having a really transparent, ethical, moral um, process in everything we do. He finds us this factory and, and we're like, okay, great. Where is it? And he's like, it checks all your boxes. And we're like, okay, where is it? And he's like, well, it's, it's in Dongguan, shoe city of the world. And yeah. we're like, where's that? And he's like, it's in China. And we're like, no, 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 no. Anywhere but China, <laughs> you know? Um, and, um, you know, long story short, he's like, no, it checks all the boxes. Like, and, and sure enough, like, uh, what ended up happening is I, I go out, I tell him I'm coming for a week to do development on the initial shoes. Yeah. And I end up staying at the factory for a month. I literally live there for a month and they think I'm only there for a week. Cause I, my thought process was like, okay, they can pull the wool over my eyes for a week, but not for a month, you know? Right. And I ate with the factory workers and, you know, I was, I was in, in with them from early morning to late at night at times. And, and 
really got the ins and outs of the whole operation and it made me feel a lot better. And the, the thing is like those first ultra shoes had recycled shoe boxes. They had, um, recycled strobe boards. They had recycled insoles. Um, they had natural tree rubber and they're literally dr dragging the rubber trees in. It was so cool to see. Um, and, um, you know, we did all this eco-friendly stuff on the, the very first shoes from the beginning. And, and this factory was part of that. And, you know, the one thing the sourcing agent, you know, mentioned to me, he's like, he's like, China's a lot like the U S they might have a corrupt government, but you know, the people, um, and the businesses are similar. You pay for what you get and you can, you can get good and you can get bad. You can get eco-friendly and you can get not eco-friendly. Um, and you know, the people as a whole, they're very peaceful. Yeah. Um, and I found that all to be very true. And, you know, the one thing that I had after coming back from China is like, we suck at hospitality. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet for me everywhere I went uh, for a month. You know, um, it was, it was just unbelievable. And I, I imagine that people from China come here and they're just like, wow, Americans, they, they don't treat us very good. You know? Yeah. Um, they don't have great hospitality and, you know, we don't comparatively speaking, you know, the, the people as a whole, you know, say what you want about the government. Um, but the people, uh, as a whole are, are unbelievably hospitable. So that experience, that 30 days in China at the factory that was building the first pairs of ultra really kind of blew some, uh, preconceived notions you had, not only about building shoes there, but people there, it kind of was an eye opening experience for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause we were, you know, it was very anti-China and anything about China previous to that. Was it because of the, the sweatshops and the worker conditions? Did you have some ideas about that or? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, my dad was working for Nike when I was born. So we knew they were producing air maxes for like $2 and 34 cents. Um, you know, and you know, crazy stuff like that. They were selling for $150 at the time. Right. Um, just, you know, and, and sweatshop labor and, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that and, you know, a lot of the concerns we all have about China even today, you know, um, so. So the, the shoes start happening. You start getting actual pairs of shoes. You're not having to make them in the toaster oven at the golden yep. house anymore. You're, you're able to, to, you know, have someone else make them. What's, what then is the process of actually getting shoe stores to carry this strange new shoe that was come up with a, you know, that a guy in, in Utah came up with in his basement. Drive there, knock on the door, present lots of science and then beg. <laughs> really? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, if I can, I can simplify that. I I've literally been in over 500 running shoe stores personally. Um, and, and Brian took a road trip uh, again, this is Brian Beckstead who uh, helped us get things started and, and, started the company with me. Um, you know, he, he drove a road trip starting, you know, in Salt Lake, uh, where we lived and drove up North, you know, through the Midwest, through Chicago, over to Boston, down to Florida and back, you know, th just basically circled the whole country, stopping at running stores all along the way. Um, and then of course, trade shows were on top of that gave us a, a chance to, you know, again, present more science and beg, um, uh, to, to more people at, at once, basically. So, you know, the running event, outdoor retailer, et cetera. At what point did you have to stop presenting science and begging and your phone started ringing with people asking for it? Uh, I would say we are still presenting science and begging at times, <laughs> um, especially at the running store level. You know, it, it's a weird thing because, uh, everywhere else, uh, it's really easy. You know, the, the outdoor shops and the REIs of the world just, just love us and sell our shoes. Like they're going out of style. Um, but the running stores are so steeped in old tradition. 
um, and a certain way of doing business. And, you know, most of them are still selling shoes based on pronation, um, you know, ca- and categorizing shoes on the shoe wall based on pronation. Um, and so, uh, but, but to your point, um, we, we ended up running a TV ad. We, we went and, and we filmed this TV ad in New Zealand and, uh, you know, that, that was a thing where people started calling the running store cause they'd never heard of us obviously. Right. And they're calling the running store and they're like, I just saw this amazing ad on TV. Do you carry these shoes? You know? And after about the 20th call, you know, the running stores are like, man, we're losing money here. So, so, so they call us up and they're like, okay, you guys are running a TV ad. Like, wh- how do I get the shoes? <laughs> you know? So, so we did have a, a pretty good growth from, um, from that at the time. That had to be some point where, you know, you're, you're a million dollars in debt, right? You've spent the 30 days in the factory. Everything is on the line here. You know, you, yeah. you strongly believe that this is the way people should be running. By the way, I just want to point it out here that Golden's not sending me a, a fat check. I don't even run in, in ultras. I run in hokas. So I just want to point that out. So no one thinks this is like a commercial for, for ultra. It's okay. We'll, we'll fix that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I mean, th- 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 everything is on the line, Golden. You know, yeah. so many people have ideas in their head, right? And, and they're, they think I could do this, I could do this, but, but the lack of actually putting yourself out there. And I think people watch like Shark Tank or whatever and get a, a different idea of what success looks like early on, right? Where, yeah. I mean, you are one bad pair of shoes, one lawsuit, one issue away from being completely bankrupt and ultra shoes not being a thing. 50 times. Yeah. I, there, were, there were 50 times where it was like, well, we're done tomorrow. I guess we're closing the doors and, and that's it. You know, that, that literally happened about 50 times. And somehow by some miracle that next day, the, the one thing that had to happen to keep us going for another you know, three weeks came together, you know, but we were on the verge of extinction 50 times. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I went to hell and back over, over the process of this thing well, as did, you know, Jeremy and Brian and, and everybody else. So, well, at some point, I mean, early on, you guys had some, you know, issues with quality and the consistency of the shoe. And, but as you progressed and as more, uh, uh, more, more types of shoes and more models came out and you guys kind of, you got into your own, you could tell that you were you were aware, Golden, that there were issues with certain hot spots in the area, and it, you definitely seem like you smoothed a lot of those things out. But at some point, it's got to be what you want, and it is what you want, and it's the company that you want, and it's making the shoes that you want. And then you get a call from somebody who wants to buy Ultra. After all yeah. those years of the 50 times of you're eating ramen noodles again because it's all on the line. How did that all go down? Um, you know, we, we were in an ownership situation um, that wasn't sustainable for us long-term, especially mm-hmm. operationally um, without, you know, significant amounts, millions and millions of dollars of funding. And I, I think, uh, you know, VF was looking for a brand that was different and disruptive and that they saw a lot of upside with and, um, you know, they wanted us plain and simple. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of ironic because we had been at the uh, Smartwell headquarters and done our athlete summit just two years before. Yeah. 
And we had asked him about, you know, being owned by VF. And, and we came out of that athlete summit, like, man, it'd be, be really cool to be owned by someone like VF. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, when, when it all came together, it, it was really interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, the way it worked out, um, yeah, I think the company is, is with an ownership group that understands, you know, keeping the integrity of a brand, um, and, um, uh, you know, trying to, trying to highlight those uniquenesses about the brand. And, and I think that's really important for a brand like ours long-term. You know, it's interesting that Golden, you create this thing. This is your baby, right? And I, I, I created a podcast. It's not the same, but I, I would, I would know if somebody were to come to me because they were rich and stupid and they're like, Ryan, we want to buy the adventure jogger. It would be hard for me to, to give up control of this little tiny baby I've created. Was it tough yeah. for you? It's still tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it would be for anybody. I mean, you make a point that is, is just kind of brain dead obvious to, to just about anybody. Um, anytime you gotta, you know, give up control of your baby, um, that's, that's going to be hard and it's going to be painful at times. And, you know, you, you just better have a good reason for doing it. So, um, yeah. But you still work there. You're like, listen, I, you, I, I have to have a job. You got to give me an office. It's got to have a nice window. And I, and I want to still be a part of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. And, you know, they brought us on with the expectation that, you know, we would still lead the company. So, um, you know, that was kind of part of the deal. And, uh, you know, part of that, though, is we, we didn't actually get any money personally. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they bought the company out yeah. of our old ownership, uh, situation and, you know, wiped away any debts we might have. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, have been incredibly gracious in, um, you know, paying us and, and letting us, um, you know, be involved with the company. So it's, it's been, it's been good. One thing I've noticed, um, about, about your brand golden is how, how much you guys are involved in the ultra scene. You're not, you're not a typical running shoe company where you have 50 models for road running and well, you've neglected, you've taken one of your, your road shoes, you made it orange and brown and put some lugs on the bottom and sold that and sold that. You guys seem really deeply committed to the trail and ultra running world. You can see that in your, in your athletes. I mean, you look at the stable of athletes, you've got, trail and ultra runners in your stable you guys are sponsoring trail and ultra races i mean you're a sponsor of the the western states 100 which is uh, pretty pretty damn cool uh, altogether yeah. but was that was that a decision to a conscious decision to kind of attack a niche that wasn't being attacked by the the big shoe companies and not really. Um, it was more like, so all the focus was on attacking the road because the road is 97% of the pie. Yeah. Um, and our first shoes were road shoes. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't make trail shoes at first. The, the instinct was our first shoe. And, um, but the reality was we were trail runners, um, personally. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, Brian and I still trail run, you know, a, a ton to this day. I, I road race as well. Uh, but, um, you know, I think what happened is it just, it was a natural extension for us because that's who we are. Right. To, you know? And so for me, it was like, yeah, I trail run, I road run, you know, I think both are important. Um, and, uh, you know, from a grassroots level, it's a lot easier to make noise at, 
in the trail scene um, because you can be authentic in there and you can do things grassroots and, and people appreciate it. You know, it's not so big that you get lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a pretty tight knit community. And I, I think people realize like we put a lot of, um, you know, I wouldn't say a ton of money, but a lot of grassroots effort and education um, into into that trail and ultra side. We probably still put more into the road side, to be honest, but um, the trail and ultra side is such a more tight-knit community. And who we are and what we embody as people, I think, really resonated with that tight-knit community. Um, because, frankly, I was out there running races, and Brian was out there running an ultra every month. And you know, our athletes, um, you know, while we had probably just as many or more athletes running road races, there's a bajillion road races and there's only so many trail races on any given weekend. And, you know, we had a lot of, of athletes and ambassadors out there in, in the trail space, just doing what we love to do and embodying who we are as people. It's a double-edged sword though, Golden, because you're right. Authenticity is important to the trail running community and the fact that they see, you know, you golden Harper, you know, adorned in all of your ultra stuff out there on the trail races. But that also, you know, when you, you sold your company, you, you, you gave your control to someone else, that authenticity has to still be there. And at any point, you know, if people don't think ultras authentically into the trail scene, then you face some backlash. That's kind of a balancing act that you really have to, to do. It's actually one of the things that makes me the most sad about uh, what's happened because I hear people say this like, oh, you know, ultra sold to VF and, you know, now they've blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I'm just here to say no executive at VF has ever told us how to change making our shoes or change our marketing or anything like that. That's not what they do. VF really helps with the back end and the operations and the invoicing and the financial Um, but they let their brands be their brands and, you know, no one at VF is telling us what to do. And, and frankly, you know, they're just giving us better tools to have better quality and better consistency and and things like that. So it's hard when, you know, somebody gets a defective shoe and it's just that, you know, somebody on an assembly line messed up that one pair. Right. All all of a sudden it's like, well, ultra sold to VF, you know, and it's like, no, that's not it. You know, and I I have to go online on message forums occasionally and kind of correct that. Um, and, and stand up um, for for us because we're the same we've always been. We're, yeah. we're doing the same things we've always done. And, um, you know, we've, you know, if, if you've followed us, we've also made a, a really um, conscious effort to really do something different for, for women. Um, mm-hmm. From the very beginning, we did, we did Fit For Her. We're the only running shoe brand um, on the planet making a full line of shoes built specifically for women with female-specific last midsoles, outsoles, et cetera. Um, and you know, you can look at our, our female athletes from Kara Goucher to Alicia Montano, Montano, um, and, um, and so on and so forth and, and see that, you know, we're, we're trying to do, do something unique for women out there and I, I hope it gets appreciated, you know, uh, and, and, you know, uh, and, and we're the same people for, for the road running scene as well. You know, we, we are runners. That's who we are as, as people. So whether it's road or trail, doesn't really matter to me. It's all fun. <laughs> I just want, I'm imagining someone complaining, by the way, online, like, wow, I got a pair of Lone Peaks and I only got 150 miles out of them. They sold out to VF. Ah! And all of a sudden they get a message below that. Hi, this is Golden Harper. 
Yes, that Golden Harper. I'd like to talk to you about. <laughs> I want to take care of you and, uh, and see what's going on here. It literally happens every week. <laughs> Do you say, hi, this is Golden Harper? Yes, that no, Golden I usually Harper. No, I usually don't. Well, actually, what I usually have to say, because nobody really knows who I am. I'm not like a celebrity or anything. Uh, you know, I just said, you know, hey, I'm the founder of Ultra, and you know, here's how it is. You know, and I, yeah. I, tr- I try to make it come from a place of love, just helping them to understand, like, yeah. you know, yeah, sorry, you got a bad shoe. Let's replace that for you, or let's prorate the mileage, or whatever. You know, bad shoes happen. Sorry, but you know that's not BS fault. All right, let's let's get. You're, you sound like a sneakerhead during this whole interview. You're a guy who loves shoes. Yeah. Now I'm not asking you to give away too much. I know you've got marketing people that'd be like Harper, don't spill the beans. But what are some yeah. interesting things that you are working on that we're going to see in future shoes? Oh man, that that is a loaded question. Okay, like um, Garmin just released watches with solar charging faces. That's that's the future, right? What is? Yeah, your... and they weren't telling you about it a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> Golden, this is a this is a tertiary running podcast. You know, this is this is not Trail Runner Nation. This is not Ultra Runner podcast. This is the Adventure Jogger you're on. Yeah, here. yeah, I, I hear you. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, you'll definitely see an emphasis for us on, on the roadside. I think, you know, we, we've, we've, in my opinion, we've, we make a, a really nice stable of trail running shoes. We, we make more road running shoes than we do trail running yeah. shoes. Um, but you know, I might say we've, we've probably more perfected our craft on the trail side. Um, and, you know, I think you'll see that same kind of level of, of detail and um, aesthetic and, and everything else go into the road shoes to continue to make them even better than they are. Um, so, so that's fun. Um, you know, obviously there's all the, um, you know, uh, dare I say fast foams out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously we're playing with that stuff. We, we got to find a way to um, make it natural though. Um, you know, the, the problem with all the, the current shoes is their, their injuries waiting to happen. Um, and those, those, you know, those foams, uh, that have a ton of energy return, they're also really unstable. Uh, and you got to find a way to corral that. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, carbon fiber plates have been proven scientifically not to, to change running economy. The carbon fiber plate isn't why these shoes are faster. It's that the foam returns more energy or for more scientific, for, uh, term they suck away less energy okay so um, everybody that was betting on what if, when ultra is going to release their carbon plate shoe wrong ultra is not releasing a carbon plate shoe uh i don't have a problem with the carbon plate i've, I've tested I'll, I'll just say i've tested a lot of carbon plates in my shoes <laughs> um but we have to get it to a place with with a fast foam and you know maybe it's carbon plate maybe it's kevlar maybe it's something else i don't know um but we have to get it to a place where we feel like it still checks the boxes of healthy um, because our our individual company values are that injury prevention and natural come first we don't want to be a you know a I'm not going to name any names, but like a lot of big brands out there that just burn through athletes. And as soon as their, you know, career flames out because they get injured, they move on to somebody else. Nike. Um, our, our, <laughs> yeah. Among others. Um, <laughs> our, I'm not, I'm not saying names. Um, that, was, our, that was my big, voice, everybody. <laughs> that definitely wasn't me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, our goal again is, is we want people to be able to run when they're 90 years old. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, there's a fine line between staying healthy and running really fast and getting injured. And when you're running at an elite level, you walk that line very, very delicately. And I, th I think it's irresponsible to give someone a pair of shoes that makes them minutely faster. I mean, let's, let's remember that Elliot Kipchoge has only run 30 seconds faster in, you know, in these new shoes than he did in previous types of shoes, um, in, in a real race, you know? So, yeah. you know, there, is there a 30 second performance benefit by wearing these in a, in a marathon? Yeah, maybe. Um, but you know, he's got perfect biomechanics. He weighs 110 pounds. Um, I could go on and on and on the shoes tuned for him. Um, he can handle the instability because his feet are freaking strong, probably from doing a lot of barefoot running when he was growing up. And, you know, if we all want to do that stuff and, and be built like him, then, then we could probably get away with it too. Uh, but I think it's irresponsible to, to put that out to the general public and have them run in it. Um, you know, from us okay. as a brand, you know, other brands can do what they want. Um, they may or may not deem it irresponsible. I'm, I'm speaking specifically for us, but we're always going to go through the filter of the shoe being natural and the shoe being injury preventative and the shoe being healthy. And when we can find a way to, to marry those two worlds, then, um, you know, then that shoe will get released from us. And, you know, that might be in six months or it might be in a year and a half or, you know, might, might be later. That's a very good non-committal answer from your marketing. Yeah. People are gonna be very happy, Golden. You're not going to get called into a meeting when this drops and they're, <laughs> they're not going to yell at you for dropping too much. Um, do you remember Ruse back in the day, Golden? No, Ruse. Look, oh, you, oh, how can you be a sneaker? Oh, like the, like the, the, uh, shoes with the kangaroos on Yes, them? the kids, the, the okay. Ruse, yes. Yeah, yeah, And they had the little, yeah, yeah. little pocket in them. We're about the same yeah, yeah. age. Well, you're about three years younger. I remember those. Did you have a pair? Would you put your lunch money in the pocket that they all had in the side of the shoe? Uh, I think we were too poor. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> Also, I pretty much only got hand-me-down running shoes. Oh, you know? okay. All right. You, didn't, so, you wouldn't have roots. But I was very aware of them and very jealous of the kids that did do that. Well, Golden, I mean, there's no other trail shoe on the market with a pouch on the side. You could call it your goo pouch, and it could be the ultra ruse. It could be the ultra, you know, mountain ruse, you could call them. And they would be the only shoe on the market with a gel pouch in each shoe. I like it. Well, see, the only, the only problem there is that you weight on your feet gets amplified way more than weight that's higher up, you know? So if you're putting anything with any sort of weight in there, it's going to slow you down a lot. Just saying, just, just throwing that out there you know, along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will give you this. Uh, if you want one of my crazy ideas that I've tried to pass off that okay. we haven't done yet is you may or may not know that 85 80 to 85%, depending on the person of your stability of your foot comes from your big toe, specifically with your big toe being able to straighten out. And yeah. most people's are bent in from wearing shoes with tapered toe boxes their whole lives, um, which is why things like correct toes are so wonderful. Um, but I wanted to do a shoe called the trail goat where we split out the big toe independently. Um, and so it's, it's held in that straight position. And so your foot is naturally way more stable and then gets more push off power. Could be a really cool idea for a sprint spike too. So, um, so, well, uh, you know, you I, I it's think, cool idea. I think Carl's contract with Hoka might be up soon. If you want to give Carl a call and say, will you wear the, the can we, we can call, we can't call them speed goats. Cause that's been, been trademarked, yeah. but we'll call them the Carl goats and they'll yeah. have a little toe thing hanging out there. 
Yeah. Yeah. And my, my code name for the shoe was trail goat all along. So kind of funny. I liked it, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday <laughs> you'll have the separated big toe and the pouch for lunch money slash goose. Super cool. <laughs> I dig it. <laughs> We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search The Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.